Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this honor to be able to preach to my church family. Lord, um, I'm sure like myself, many here are heavy hearted with things happening in um, our country just with um, death and division and hostility. Lord, our hearts are heavy for the people of Afghanistan, not just the Americans, but uh, those who are native. And Lord, I, I pray, just as Don did earlier, that, Lord, just as you saved a persecutor and a Christian killer in Saul and turned him into Paul the apostle, Lord, save, save a Taliban leader, bring salvation. Lord, we know you can do it. Lord, I pray for me and these people right now, Lord, that you would show us Christ. God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. Lord, if I say anything unhelpful, help them forget quickly. And Lord, I pray that you would just speak to our hearts and change us through these 18 verses. Amen. Uh, so last Christmas, my dad, who's here, and um, my brother, we assembled a playground that uh, my parents and my siblings, they all chipped in to buy like a, one of those big wooden uh, playgrounds that you put in your house, or you don't put it in your house, unless you have a really big house. Our house is not that big. We put it in the backyard of our house, and uh, it took us two days. Um, it's a long process. There's like, you know, 100 pages of instructions. There's hundreds of parts, and, um, and so what you did is we would grab some pieces, We'd put something together, and I'm like, I think I know what that is, but I'm not sure. And instead of you just building on top and building it all together, you'd build something, put it to the side, and then they'd have you grab some other stuff. You build it, and you're like, okay, I think that may be a slide or something. You put that together, and then you build something else. And then at the end, then you put the large pieces together, and you've got some rock wall, you've got a slide, you've got... Uh, some swings, and you're like, okay, now I can see what we can do with this. Well, in a similar fashion, the author of Hebrews, the, this pastor, or this teacher, that's what he's done for 10 chapters. He, is, he has taken different theological truths. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the law. Jesus is better than the old covenant. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. He's better than the old high priest. And, and now what he's doing in these 18 verses, he's kind of pulling all of those together. And then in verse 19 of chapter 10, all the way through the end of the, the book, he's going to show us, now here's what all this means. And so he's going to get into some examples and uh, exhortations uh, starting next week all the way through the end of chapter 13. But what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to show how he's pulling all these things together uh, to show that Jesus is better than anything in Judaism. He's better than anything in the old sacrificial system. So with that said, let's get into our first point, the substanceless shadow. This is the first four verses. Read along with me. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, Make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all. And they would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But 
Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So this substanceless shadow is the law. And here, uh, the, this author uses the law to describe the old sacrificial system, okay? So Paul, in a lot of his writings, he used the law to refer to, like, the actual rules. This author, as Trev and Brandon and uh, Carson have explained, this is the old sacrificial system. So he says, this is only a shadow. And so what do we learn about this shadow from these verses? Well, first, the, we see that, that it is a picture not perfection. So it's a, uh, a shadow of the things that are coming, not the realities themselves. So similar to if I were to um, have them pull up a picture of my family, I would say, this is my family, but you know that's not actually my family. That's, that's a picture of my family. When I go on vacation, I don't bring printouts of my wife and then like hold it up and take pictures, all right? I don't go to the swing set and put pictures of Gus and Nolan and Vera and push the pictures. I actually put the reality, them, in there. So when it says it's, it's a picture, and then it says it, it, for this reason, because it's a picture, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated, year after year, make perfect. Those who draw near to make perfect, that means to accomplish its purpose, to complete. We're separated from God by our sin, these sacrifices are supposed to, to bring reconciliation, but they can't do it. They just picture it. And so the sin that keeps us falling short of God's glory and it separates us from us, well, as long as the sin remains, we remain separated from him, plagued by guilty conscience, broken and waiting to be made whole. It's a picture, not perfection. The second thing we see, we see it's these, these uh, old sacrificial system. It's a reminder, not removal. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, otherwise would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. So it's pretty clear. If they worked, if they accomplished what they needed to accomplish, they would have stopped being offered. This, this is um, information we've already learned, but the repetition in the sacrifices merely demonstrates the ongoing grip of sin. A sacrifice is made one day, well, they got to come back the next day to do another. The, the big day of atonement where they sacrifice a lot of stuff, they'd come back the next year and do it all over again because sin still grips the people. And it says, <clears throat> those sacrifices, this verse 3, are an annual reminder of sins. The blood scattered and spread and shed, it just reminds them that sin still remains. To illustrate this, um, so when Gus was a baby, he did not take a bottle. Uh, he did, thankfully, have a pacifier. And, um, and so babies, if you've never been around babies, they cry for everything because they can't talk. But a lot of times you feed them and they're fine. Uh, but, you know, sometimes we're driving and Gus starts crying. And as a parent, you can kind of distinguish, like, okay, this is a pain cry, this is a hungry cry, this is I'm just mad cry. But when he has this hungry cry, one of the ways that you would solve the crying is you'd, you know, throw the pacifier back there and then he'd stop. And what does the pacifier do? It, it tricks them, basically, to where he's hungry and, he's tell, and his body's telling him, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. He gets the pacifier. Okay, I'm not hungry. But eventually, he realizes it's a trick. And he spits it out, and he's crying again. He's like, I'm still hungry. Or, you know, you stick your finger back there, and 
Now, Nolan would bite, and so I don't do that with Nolan, but, but Gus would, would suck, and then eventually he would figure out, I'm still hungry, because it just pacifies the hunger. It kind of tricks you into thinking it's no longer there, but eventually they realize I'm hungry. Well, in the same way, these yearly and daily sacrifices are like the pacifier. They're not actually solving our guilt problem. And just like a baby figures out I'm still hungry, the sacrifices remind us I'm still guilty. And we need something to satisfy. So the sacrifices are not the real thing, but rather a reminder, a yearly reminder that sin remains, sin brings death, and a true atonement is still needed. The final thing we see in these first four verses is we see that the sacrificial system offered bulls, not bodies. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And if you remember to uh, chapter 922, that's the, you, those of you who grew up in church may know this verse, but without the shedding of the bl- of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So we see that shedding of blood is needed, but then here it tells us that the, the blood shed by bulls and goats is not what's needed. Well, here's why it doesn't work. The blood and the death of the sacrifices offered, they don't do anything to actually remove sin because animals aren't the same as people. All right? Now, I know some people may disagree with that now, all right? But there's a difference between, as much as I, I love pandas, okay? Um, I love pandas. But a panda is not the same as my children or any person, all right? And so animals aren't the same. They have different natures. They're not created in the image of God. They don't have the same value. So it's not a suitable substitute. Animals can't consent to substitute, all right? The bulls aren't like, I'll be next, okay? No, they just, okay. They just go wherever they're led. We needed someone like us in nature and worth, yet without sin, to willingly die on our behalf. That's how forgiveness was was going to be achieved, and these bulls weren't doing it. So we see in this first paragraph, the law as a shadow of a reality cannot take away our sins. Second paragraph, we see the sufficient sacrifices. This is verses um, 5 through 10. And um, in, this, in the first three verses, he's going to quote Psalm 40. And then the next three verses, he's going to explain it. So I'm just going to read the first three verses, and then we'll look at um, the explanation afterwards. It says, therefore, this is verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And before I get to the explanation, look in verse 5. It says, when Christ came into the world, he said, but then the author quotes Psalm 40, which was written by David. Um, So the author attributes the words of David to Christ because David was a type of Christ. And so when uh, we talk about uh, the whole of Scripture being inspired by God or Treb's favorite Greek word, theopunestes, God breathed, all right, David was writing words that were true for him, but he unknowingly was also prophesying and speaking about Christ, who is the greater David. So this author, he's going to provide some commentary. He's this is sort of like his sermon. He's, provide, he's referencing, now he's going to commentate on this. And here's what he commentates in verse 8. He shows that, uh, 
that God is looking for right hearts, not religiosity. Look at verse 8. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. So the sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings, these are just different types of offerings. All right, if you read Leviticus, you'll see like page after page of different types of offerings. So he's saying all these offerings that, that God commands uh, in, in the Old Testament, all right, even though these were offered according to what was dema- uh, commanded, that's not what God was really pleased with, all right? God's desire in the Old Testament was not mere ritual adherence to religious ordinances. He's always been after the heart. Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offering. So here he wants a merciful heart, a heart that acknowledges and loves God. 1 Samuel 15.22, this is where uh, King Saul, he's commanded, go kill these people, kill everything they have. These are God's enemies. He's, he's trying to set up his kingdom. And Saul's like, I got you. Then he goes, and he doesn't do it. He doesn't kill the king. He doesn't kill the animals. He holds them back. And what he does is he offers some of these animals as a sacrifice. And when the prophet comes, he's like, did you obey? And Saul's like, yes. And he's like, well, why do I hear animals? And Saul's like, well, see, what happened was I was going to offer this to God so he'd be happy with me. All right? And Samuel's response was, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Then one more example, I'll reference David once more. This is after David committed adultery with, I don't even like saying adultery, he, had, he violated here, sexual exploitation of Bathsheba and then murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. And then Psalm 51, he writes, and he says, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. All right, so what does God want? What is the type of offering that's please, pleasing to him? And David says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. God, that is what you will not despise. And so when we come to, to God, we don't come with our resume. We come with repentant hearts. We don't come and say, look, look at my church attendance. Never missed a Sunday. Look at how much I serve. Look at this or this or this. We don't do that. We, we come with a humble and repentant heart saying, God, I need you. I love you. And that is what he's after. Right hearts, not religiosity, not these um, just sort of going through the motion. The other thing we see uh, is that God is making things new not renewed. So verse 9 says, Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Now you may be wondering, what is the first? Well, he mentions this uh, back in chapter 8, where he's talking about the old and the new covenant. Hebrews 8.13 says, By calling the covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. And so, when Jesus comes to do God's will, he's setting aside the old covenant 
to bring something new. Now, I have the NIV. I'm preaching from the NIV, which I normally don't, but I'm doing it because that's what's in the pew. I don't like how they translate it set aside. Um, some of you may have better phraseology. Um, but basically the word means to remove or withdraw the validation of something, to abolish it, to invalidate it, to do away with it. So, for example, at night when we go to bed, a lot of nights I'll, I have like a couple books by the, the bed. I'll read a chapter, and then I'll set it aside only for the next night to pick it up and read it again. All right, that's not what he's talking about. This is like when Trace and I were dating, I had an iPhone, and this is back when iPhone was having those problems where, like, you'd make a phone call and then your battery would be at, like, 15%. Anybody else have that problem? Okay. Um, and so, anyways, I'm also very cheap. So my iPhone was having these problems. I was like, Tracy was like, you know what? You need to get a phone. I was like, no. I remember I had this phone in college that was so cool. I had, it was one where you could, like, do a song as the ringtone. I had Lil John and the East Side Boys as my ringtone. And I had an OU cover. I was like... I'm so cool. And it had the T9 texting, all right? You older people might know what I'm talking about. I was like, that phone was the best phone I've ever had. No problems. I'm going to go back to that. She was like, okay, I don't think it's going to work. And I was like, no, I got this. And um, I think like after two or three days, I was like, Tracy, I think I got a good new phone. All right, so T9 was great at the time, but... You have to, like, you know, iPhones and Androids now, like, if you're texting one person, you can see, just easily see. Well, with the t old phones, you have to, like, go back, and it's, it's like going through a maze, solving a puzzle just to figure out who texts you and what they text you. It was terrible. Well, that's the putting aside that he's talking about right here where it's like you can't go back to a flip phone once you have a smartphone. Once you have Christ in the new covenant, you can't go back to the old covenant. It doesn't work. And then finally we see, this is God's will, not mine. Verse 11, or verse 10, excuse me. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus was committed to doing the will of the Father. He said, I have come to do your will, and by that will, we've been made holy. So, uh, just for some examples to see that Jesus is committed to doing the will of the Father. After uh, he meets with the women, woman at the well in John 4, uh, the disciples are asking him about food. And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Then in the next chapter, after healing a paralyzed man, he says, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear. And my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Then the next chapter, he says, I have come down from heaven to do not my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me. Then, as he's praying in the garden, this is maybe a verse, once again, a verse that hopefully, if you've grown up a church, you've been familiar with, but just in case you haven't, he's praying, knowing he's about to face death. He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was committed to doing God's will. And then he specifies, this author in verse 10 specifies what that will is. The will that Christ came to do 
was to sanctify a people through his one-time offering of his body as an atoning sacrifice for sin. So look in verse 10, it says, through that, by his will, we have been made holy. Some of you may, it may say, uh, we have been sanctified. So having been made holy or sanctified is the, so I'm going to get a little grammar here for it. It's a perfect passive participle, okay? What that means, perfect means it's an action that's been done in the past but has ongoing effects. So like I, back in 2014, I was hired by Metro Technology Centers, okay? They brought me on the team. They said, you come to work, we'll give you money, all right? It has ongoing effects to where now I continue to go to work and they continue to pay me. In 2017, I was married to Tracy. We were married. Perfect tense verb means that this has ongoing effects. And then the passive part of it means that we are not the primary actors in this. We have been sanctified. We, we have been made holy. God is the one who does this. And the instrument or the means by which he sanctifies us is Jesus' body. Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Isaiah 53 says it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. So Jesus came into the world knowing Isaiah 53. Came into the world knowing this was God's will for him to come, live a perfect life, and die for sins. And Jesus' offering of himself once for all, it means it's never needed again. So Christ came into the world to do God's will, to sanctify people to himself through his one-time sacrifice. We look at this third paragraph, the prevailing priest. Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the summary of the author's arguments about the, the old priesthood, the old covenant, and the, um, and the new priesthood, the new covenant under Christ, he, he draws some contrast in these verses. So first of all, we see that uh, sitting, not standing. Jesus is sitting, and the priests are standing. They're constantly working. We've already addressed this many times before, but in verse 11, the priests are standing because they're constantly having to work. They're constantly having to offer sacrifices. But Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? Well, earlier in this chapter, we saw that, or in this book, Jesus is living, making intercession for his people. Brandon preached on this uh, passage, Hebrews 7.25, Several weeks ago, he says, consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. No distance can stop his saving work. Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is living and interceding on our behalf. He's, he's working for our good. And then this passage uh, in verse 12 tells us that, um, or verse 13 Jesus is waiting. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. So 
uh, in theology terms, we have what's called the already not yet reality, which means that already God has, has done something, but the full realization of that is not quite yet. And with our salvation, Jesus has secured our salvation. But not yet are we fully, fully redeemed in a practical sense. We still struggle with sin as Christians. Jesus has already defeated his enemies, yet they still live, but they're on a leash. Well, one day, he's not going to need a leash because they're going to be dead. And it says <clears throat> that he's going to make his enemies his footstool. All right, he's going to fully defeat them. Romans 16, 20 says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So in, um, in your version, uh, if you're reading the, the, the Pew Bible, it just says that <clears throat> he's waiting to be, for his enemies to be made his footstool. Foot is used one time. Well, in the Greek, the, the root word for foot is used twice, back to back, all right? And that's to emphasize that, like, when Jesus puts them under his feet, like, they're not going anywhere. They're not doing anything. They are completely under the control of Christ. And that's the future. Jesus is sitting because the work of redemption is done, but he's still interceding on our behalf, and he's still waiting to fully, finally destroy his enemies. The other contrast we see is that Jesus is, um, he offered himself one time, and the priest, their sacrifices offered many times, never actually took away sins. Or they offer repeated. So one sacrifice that is effective forever, Jesus is. The third comparison we see is that Jesus, his sacrifice is effective. Theirs is empty. The priestly's sacrifice never took away sins. Jesus, his is super effective. So look at verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever. All right, so we've already seen this word in, in verse 1, perfected, that he's, he's completed what he needs to do. He has made us complete, being able to be reconciled to God. And so we don't look to ourselves, but we look to Christ for a cleansed conscience, for full forgiveness of sins, for total flawlessness in the future. And then we see another word that, that may be familiar or phrase in NIV, being made holy. We saw in verse 10 that it was, uh, we have been made holy. Remember, perfect, passive. Well, this is, we are being made holy, present, passive. So Christ is in the process of making us holy, even though at one point he has already fully sanctified us, brought us out of sin, and put us into new life. We'll talk a little bit more about that and the implications. So we see what these... Uh, this new priest, this new uh, high priest in Jesus, the Old Testament priests, they offered daily ineffective sacrifices and they died. Jesus offered a one-time super effective sacrifice and he still lives, working for the good of his people. And then this final paragraph, we see the ceaseless covenant. Look at verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where, there have been, where these have been forgiven, 
Sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. The new covenant is shown as superior to the old covenant most clearly through the full forgiveness of sins. Um, earlier when the, the author quoted Psalm 40, he says that Christ spoke these words, and then now he's quoting Jeremiah 31 and saying the Holy Spirit. And so once again, Treb's favorite word, Theopanestus. We see God's spirit breathing life and inspiration into all of scripture, applying it to our lives. So this new covenant that he's going to establish, Treb and uh, I think Carson had these passages back in Hebrews 8 and 9, but there were some things that we saw about the old covenant that were, um, that were insufficient, that were faultful. Um, the priests, they were sinners. The sacrifices had to be made over and over again. All right, The priests would die. The people, they did not continue in the covenant. They were told, do this, do this, do this. They did the opposite most of the time. And so all those things pointed to the fact that we needed a new and better covenant inaugurated by a new and better high priest. And so what does this new covenant bring? Since Treb dealt with it extensively, I'm not going to deal with it extensively. I'm just going to look at a a little bit of it. So verse 16 tells us that the new covenant brings a new heart and a new mind for all those in it. This is what we call conversion or regeneration. Everybody that's a part of God's kingdom in the new covenant are all Christians. God ensures that those whom he snatches out of sin into his life, he puts a new heart that loves God, that hates sin, that desires holiness. And even when we stumble and fall, he brings us back all the way to the end. So if you're in the new covenant, if you're a Christian, that means you are primarily a person who has a new heart. You're a new being. The old has passed away. And then we see also that in this new covenant, there's full forgetfulness of sin. So verse 17 says, then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Now once again, the NIV doesn't do justice to the no more, all right? Um, <clears throat> this, so, is, this isn't just like a no. This is like a certainly not, absolutely not. So this would be like, a better translation would be, their sins and lawless acts I will certainly not ever remember again. And so the foundation for the new covenant is forgiving and atoning of our sins. And where there's forgiveness, as verse 18 says, where there's forgiveness, where there's pardon for sin, there's not any more need for sacrifices. The work is done. And here he concludes what he started back in Hebrews 4.4 about how Jesus is better than the old sacrificial system. The new covenant is superior to the old and is shown most clearly in the full and final forgiveness of sins through the one-time sacrifice of Christ. All of that, in the uh, famous words of the um, old ESPN anchor, Stuart Scott, is from the Department of Redundancy Department. Okay? We've been hearing this. So what does it mean? It's like, who cares? What does it mean? Well, I've got three implications, applications from these verses. I'm, I'm going to have to step a little bit on the toes of whoever's preaching next week because 
next week is when the actual application comes. But I'm just going to, like, dip my toe in the water and bring it back. I'm not jumping in. Um, so, first of all, first application implication of these 18 verses is when you read the Bible, look for Jesus in it. Verse 1 says that the old is the shadow. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus is the one speaking the words in the psalm. Verse 15 says the Holy Spirit is the one who's speaking the words through Jeremiah. Well, someone much smarter than me uh, has a really, like, memorable line. says the Old Testament is Jesus Christ concealed, and the New Testament is Jesus Christ revealed. When you are reading the Old Testament, look for Jesus in it. Look for how does this point to the cross? How does this point to Jesus' life? All right? And if you're not sure how to do that, find a Christian who's more mature than you that can help you learn how to do that. This is one of the reasons why going to community groups or life groups is really important because they help us learn how to read the Bible. All right? Secondly, application from this passage, understand the distinction between positional and progressive sanctification. And you'd be like, positional, progressive what? Verse 10 and 14, where it talks about we have been made holy, we have been sanctified. Verse 14, we are being made holy, we are being sanctified. In theology terms, the have been sanctified or have been made holy, that's what we call positional sanctification. That it's in when Paul uses his language, he uses more like courtroom language of, of like the verdict is not guilty. You are not guilty. We are holy in the eyes of God right now, Christian. That is positional sanctification. We ain't moving. But progressive sanctification is a little bit different. We are being made holy. We're on the way to being made holy. An illustration to maybe help you remember this is, um, is, is like doing a yo-yo on an elevator, okay? So if I get on an elevator in Devon Tower, all right, and the, yo- and, the, and the yo-yo is my sanctification, all right? The yo-yo is going up and down, right? There's some good, good times in our lives, some bad times where we like, oh, I see lots of growth, but there's some times where it's like you're struggling. Maybe you're discouraged. You can't even see any fruit. Well, just like that yo-yo, maybe going up and down, it's in the elevator. So where, where's it going? Thank you, Jenny. It's going up. So it's progressing up even though it's got some ups and downs. All right, in a similar way, you're going to struggle sometimes. All right? But for those who, who Christ has truly saved, there's always going to be an upward movement to holiness, to sanctification. So practically, what does this mean? Well, this is where I'm, I'm dipping in the waters of next week. Encourage one another in the faith. And stir one another up to love and good works. All right? Because there's a temptation when we think about this of like, oh, I'm holy, I'm sanctified, I don't have to do anything. Well, Paul tells us, put to death the deeds of the body. All right? We have to walk in holiness, walk in a manner worthy of your call. And so some of us, we may need a kick in the rear end. We, we may need a shake of the shoulder say, Walk in holiness. And some of us, we may be over here. I can't go on. So discouraged. 
And we may need a gentle hand. Say, the Lord has saved you. I see fruit. Walk with me. Just like that paralytic man had four friends. Bring him to Jesus sometimes. We need four friends to bring us to Jesus. Practically, this also means have patience with brothers and sisters in the faith, including yourself. One of my favorite um, passages is 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. There are going to be those who are in different levels of maturity, different seasons of life, that we have to have wisdom and patience in how we deal with them. Um, a lot of people uh, that maybe haven't spent a whole lot of time like reading the whole New Testament, they'll say, I want a church like the New Testament church. They haven't read 1 Corinthians. Uh, so I want to show this distinction of positional and prog progressive sanctification, one last illustration from the Bible. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes a letter to Corinthian Christians. And in the opening chapters, he says, to the saints who are in Corinth, saints, the sanctified ones, the holy ones, right? Positional sanctification. Then he goes on and deals with the problem where some people are suing some other people in the church instead of talking to each other. Like, oh, well, that's, you know, people have division. Then it gets really crazy. A man is having sexual relationships with his stepmom and bragging about it. And he's like, send him out of the church so he can realize this is destructive. And when he's repented, bring him back. Then later on, during communion, Lord's Supper, we use grape juice. They didn't. People were getting drunk. All right? That's progressive sanctification where Paul's having the right to say, like, what are you doing? This is craziness. And so understand those distinctions, all right, so that when you see someone sin, don't be like, yeah, he's going to hell. He ain't a Christian. But we have patience with one another. But also that if somebody is lazy and just banking on the positional without pursuing, that we can say, no, the true Christian has a new heart that hates their sin, and I don't see a whole lot of sin hatred in you. All right, our final point of application is kind of the main thrust of this passage. But reject self-atonement and embrace Christ's substitutionary atonement. So we all do things that bring guilt. Even, and maybe for most Christians, the things that weigh you down the heaviest are sins that you've committed after becoming a Christian. But even unbelievers, they deal with guilt. I had lunch with Brian Parsons a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me um, about a show that he had been watching. It's like a, a crime show or like the people th uh, are thieves, they steal stuff, and they get away with it. But he was like, multiple stories where people are like, after years, they're, they're like, scot-free. They go and turn themselves in because I couldn't handle it. 
uh, Trace and I watched a, a documentary on Amazon Prime about, that's called One Child Nation, about the one child policy in China. And there's a woman who, uh, during that policy time, an older Chinese woman, that she killed through abortion many babies. She did these forced sterilizations on women. And they're following her, and she had this, this like, barn in her yard. And in it, she had these, like, plaques or ribbons. And she, showed, she said, this is my atonement. And they represented all the babies that she had helped bring into life since the one policy, one child policy had been discarded. All the women she had helped in a room full. And I think the documentary guy said, like, is it helping? And you could tell by her face, it's not helping. But we all have different ways of trying to, to, to deal with our guilt. So some examples, some of us, Maybe we compare. So we got some guilt, but we're like, but I'm not as bad as this person. So the person who's like a gossip or a jerk is like, well, at least I didn't steal anything. I may be mean, but I didn't steal anything from that person. And then the thief looks to the murderer and says, well, I, I steal stuff, but I don't murder people. And then the murderer goes to Hitler and is like, well, at least I'm not Hitler. All right? Uh, but even Hitler probably did something where he was like, you know what, yeah, I kill millions of people, but I'm nice to dogs or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how he treated dogs. But the point is, we compare, and in doing that, we're trying to pacify that guilt. Some of us, we try to cover it up. So we use entertainment. All right, so maybe you just, like, I'm feeling guilty. I just need to, like, binge a show for the next 15 hours. Or more severely, some of us self-medicate to pills, weed, or alcohol. Say, I don't want to have to think about the bad stuff in my life. Let me just be in this haze. Some of us just busy ourselves. Like, I'm just going to be busy, so I don't have to think about anything that I've done. Just focusing on work, work, work. Some of us, we clean up. We try to clean up our guilt. So we do our best to, to do enough good to outweigh the bad, similar to this Chinese lady. All right, this is one of my go-tos, and sometimes I literally try to clean. Like, I'll go to the kitchen. I'm, give me these dishes. I said something mean to Tracy. And I think that that's going to, like, make it better, or I, you know, like, I can't believe I did that. Let me get this Bible. I'm going to read the whole Old Testament. I'm not going to sleep until it's done. You know, like, we do stuff like that, to try to clean it up. And this is kind of the issue that the, the Hebrew author is dealing with of, of religiosity. This covering or this uh, cleaning up. It just pacifies. And then uh, this is also one of my go-tos. We beat up or give up. We beat ourselves up. So this is like self-loathing as a form of punishment. So maybe you sin and like I can't, I can't go back to church until I, I have a better week or a better day. Or maybe you get in an argument on the way to work. Or, I don't know, maybe you're hungover Sunday morning. And you're like, I can't go to church. I can't go to church like this. And so you stay away. You stay away from 
from Christ and you stay away from his people thinking, you know, I can forgive other people, but I can't forgive myself. And that sounds really nice, but what that really is, is that's a mistrust and it's, it, it seems pious to say, I, I, I can forgive you, but I can't forgive me. It's, it's not piety, that's pride. As a Christian to say, I can't forgive myself, you're not trusting that Jesus has already forgiven. You're saying, yeah, you say that I'm forgiven, but I got to do some more punishment before I'm actually forgiven. No. All of those things, all these things I mentioned, they're just multiple ways to deal with our own guilt, to pacify our guilt by our own efforts. But because Christ has perfected us for all time, by his one-time substitutionary atoning sacrifice, we can draw near to God we could draw near to Christ with boldness, knowing that he loves us, that he's with us, and he's for us. And so, as I was reading this passage, one thing struck me is that in these 18 verses, it tells us about what Jesus did. And it does tell us he did it to do God's will, but it never really tells, like, what's the motivation? Like, why did Jesus die for sins or sinners? Thankfully, the Bible doesn't remain silent. In fact, it shouts it throughout the New Testament why Jesus did this. And I want to read Romans 5 real quick, 6 through 8. It says, you see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person Though maybe for a good person, someone might die. But God demonstrates his own love for us. God demonstrates his own love for us. And how is he going to do it? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All this stuff that I've just been talking about, all this stuff that Treb and Carson and Brandon have been talking about, why did Jesus come and die? Out of love. But not just any type of love. Love for enemies. Love for sinners. Love for ungodly, guilt-ridden people and weak people. And so, non-Christian and Christian, the key application is the same for everybody. Reject self-atonement. Reject trying to clean yourself up. Reject avoiding Christ and come in your weakness, in your sin, to Christ, trusting and believing that he can save you. He can give you a new heart. Right? This is good news because forgiveness doesn't, doesn't sound any better than the moment you realize, I am a sinner. Being made clean sounds beautiful to the person who knows they're dirty. Being a son or a daughter is awesome to the person who feels like a bastard. Being made free is wonderful for the person who feels enslaved to sin. Being made new and given new life is, is wonderful and great news for the person who feels dead inside. And so, Christian or non-Christian, if you feel that way, 
come to Christ, you are the type of person that he welcomes with gentleness and love and tenderness and full forgiveness. And this Christ, this high priest, this wonderful Savior is worthy of our praise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that you have died for our sins, that in Christ we can have new life and full forgiveness. Father, help us to reject any pacifying ways that we um, try to deal with our own guilt, but rather let us bring our guilty and sinful selves to you, trusting that in you we're made new and in you we can have life. Amen. Let's all stand together.